when I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will, where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a I'm Henry. This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the podcast, BT, Danny, and I are three leftist combat veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and provide some much-needed historical context and examination. Tom Secker, welcome back to Fortress on a Hill. Thanks for coming to chat with us about uh, Mr. Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah, no worries. It's always good to be talking to you guys. And I think this will be a, a good one. It's a good film to discuss. So before we get started, I, I have a little piece of history that I want to throw out there for everybody just to give some extra context as we go through the film. Um, there was a, a note in the the DOD pages about something referred to as McNamara's 100,000. And I found a book on it last night that I learned a ton from, even though I only got to read about 30 pages of it. But I'm going to read the prologue here, and it'll give you kind of, kind of an idea. So. In 1966, the U.S. war in Vietnam was heating up rapidly, and President Lyndon Johnson and his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, were faced with a problem. The armed forces needed more troops for the war zone, but there was a shortage of men who were considered fair game for the military draft. There were plenty of men uh, of men at draft age, 18 through 26, in the United States, but most of them were unavailable. Many were attending college, using student deferments to avoid the draft. Others had found safe havens in the National Guard and reserves, which by and large were not sent to Vietnam. Still others were disqualified because they scored poorly on the military's mental and physical entrance tests. How could Johnson and McNamara round up enough men to send to war? They realized that they would anger the vote-powerful middle class if they drafted college boys and if they sent National Guardsmen and reservists to Vietnam. So instead, they decided to induct the low-scoring men whom Johnson referred to in a secret White House memo as, quote, second-class fellows, end quote. On October 1st, 1966, McNamara launched a program called Project 100,000, which lowered mental standards Men who had been unqualified for military duty the day before were now deemed qualified. By the end of the war, McNamara's program had taken 354,000 substandard men into the Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Navy. Among those troops, excuse me, among the troops, these men were often known as McNamara's morons or the Moron Corps or McNamara's boys. Military leaders from General Westmoreland, the commanding general in Vietnam, to lieutenants and sergeants at the platoon level, viewed McNamara's program as a disaster. Because of the Project 100,000 men were slow learners, they had difficulty absorbing necessary training. Because many of them were incompetent in combat, they endangered not only themselves, but their comrades as well. A total of 5,478 low IQ men died while in the service, most of them in combat. Their fatality rate was three times higher than the other GIs. An estimated 20,000 were wounded, and some were permanently disabled, including an estimated 500 amputees. There were also tens of thousands of other second-class men who were not part of that project, 
people were inducted despite medical defects such as missing fingers or blindness in one eye, psychiatric disorders, social maladjustment, and criminal backgrounds. Military leaders didn't want them or were forced to accept them. We don't know officially how many of them were died or wounded in combat. Uh, this uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name. I'll, I'll tag it in the show notes that wrote the book. Um, when he was in the Army, 1967 and 1970, I got to know some of McNamara's substandard soldiers, and I vowed that one day I would tell their stories and give the background. This book is the fulfillment of that vow. So in, in reading that, I, I, I started thinking about Bo Bergdahl and that Bo made it into the service during a time in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars where they needed more troops. And it's pretty clear that some of his, his issues definitely had an impact on his choice to walk off his post in Afghanistan. Um, so as we go through that today, this entire, the story of the book, the story of the movie is based on this idea. It's based on this, this piece of history. Um, so please, please try to look through it in that lens. So the differences between the book and the movie are, are just so vast, it almost starts to bend the meaning of the word. I don't know. It, it didn't really seem like it was actually organically moved from one to the other. In the book, Forrest is six foot four and 242 pounds, um, who had huge success in high school football, which made his scholarship to the University of Alabama a lot more plausible. Um, this is a quote that he, that Forrest put in the book about Vietnam. Anyhow, they say it is real quiet because this is the beginning of the Gooks New Year, Tet or some such, and they've got a truce going on. All of us is tremendously relieved because it is frightened enough as it is, because we, we, we is frightened enough as it is. The peace and quiet, however, did not last long. Also later on, when he makes his trip to China to participate in the ping pong tournament, he actually has a dinner with Chairman Mao and Chairman Mao asks him directly what he thought of the Vietnam War. And Forrest told him straight up that he thought it was a bunch of shit. And the, the last thing, and I didn't, I, I, I want to read the whole book because I have, and I, I, I just dug it out yesterday because I was noticing this stuff. Um, but the other fact, thing that is really surprising to me was Lieutenant Dan was homeless in the book, where in the film, I don't think he was ever portrayed as being someone that didn't have a home or had it was going to lose his home. He always had a place to say, yes, it was a crap New York City apartment, but it was a home. And in thinking about this one, how often do we see homeless veterans actually portrayed in films, let alone with this kind of authenticity? Um, Lieutenant Dan at one point is too drunk to give an anti-war speech and the people organizing the, the speech kicked him off the stage. Now that's a point of realism. That could actually happen to, to a, a disabled vet, but they instead I think they just went straight for the a drop in the feel good bucket. What do you what do you fellas think about that stuff? Well, certainly, and Tom knows better about this. There was obviously some sort of sanitization of any anti war messages in the film itself. Um, it's interesting that Forrest was so much bigger. They had that in, in, in the real movie. I think Bubba would be closer to that size, right? Yeah. But uh, but that but that's you know that's some surface level stuff, right? It's interesting that it's different. But what I find is, you know, okay, so there's an any war speech that doesn't happen, but 
you know, I don't remember there being uh, any any war speech by Lieutenant Dan. Uh, he's not shown homeless. Uh, Forrest doesn't tell doesn't tell Chairman Mao uh, that the war is bullshit. I mean, in the movie, they make Forrest into such a simpleton, right? That it would never occur to him to have a political opinion. I mean, am I right to assess it that way, Tom? Oh yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and I, I think that that is interesting because. You know, Forrest is, is at all these key events, right, in American history. That's, of course, like a big part of what the film is. Um, but he's a voyeur. He's an innocent voyeur to this, right? He's an innocent observer. Yes, Vietnam is messy in the film as it is released in whatever, 94, or whatever year it was, right? Um, but it, I, I don't think it's a particularly political movie in any way i mean it, it strays very far from any anti-war themes and 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 i guess my question and i don't know if you know this tom is to what extent did dod play a role in that sanitization of the movie well some interesting case because ultimately the film was rejected by the military they didn't actually provide any support on it but it did go through some degree of the script review process and they did make some changes to try and appease the military and, you know, try and win over their support. Um, but even though the answer was ultimately a no, those elements remained in the script, or at least a lot of them did. And I mean, I don't know, there are little hints and moments in the film that are have an anti-war tinge to them, but it certainly isn't the thrust of the movie and it isn't the thrust of Forrest's character, let alone Lieutenant Dan's character. Um, I thought what you said about in the book that he's homeless, but in the film he's, okay, he's living in some sort of crappy hotel room on living off, you know, government benefits, and he's obviously got a fairly miserable life. Um, but then he's kind of, you know, Forrest rescues him out of that and he keeps on drinking, but his alcoholism is treated as just a kind of laughing point, as just a kind of joke. Oh, he's keeping his arms, you know, keeping his arms exercised. <laughs> and it's right. like, you know, from what you've been telling me, Henry, in the book drawn out as a consequence of what happened to him in Vietnam, that these are the obvious and inevitable consequences of his suffering, that's not really portrayed in the film at all. He's just, he's, you know, I mean, the film is, I think, a pretty good piece of cinema, just strictly just taking it as a piece of film, talking apolitically here. It's a kind of lovely piece of Americana. It's got laughing points. It's got moments that make you kind of cry. It's tied in with all of these big moments in U.S. history. There's kind of a lot going for it just as a story that's being told on a screen. But yeah, when you look into the politics of it, you see how what started out as a strongly anti-war story diluted all of that down to just a few little moments in a film that's full of emotive moments. So it's certainly not the mainstay. It's certainly not the center of the story in any way. Um, the one moment where Forrest isn't just a passive observer of these events, which is actually my favorite moment in the whole film, uh, is when Nixon, he meets Nixon and Nixon tells him, no, 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 I'll get you a better hotel. And he ends up in the Watergate hotel, witnessing the break-in across the street at the Watergate office complex. And he phones up the police and tells them. And I kind of like that idea of, you know, Forrest accidentally causing Watergate to happen. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, aside from that, he is largely a passive observer. He is very placid as a character, and that's part of his likability, and obviously it's Tom Hanks, the most likable man in Hollywood, 
So they're very much playing up to that. But yeah, it does bother me that a story that obviously came out and quite strongly anti-war narratives and statements became a film where that was very much sidelined. And certainly the DOD played some degree of a, a role in that. I mean, one of their problems with it, according to the DOD's database, is that it had a nihilistic view of the Vietnam War. That doesn't necessarily come through to me in the final film. Um, so I get the impression the script that the military reviewed had a sort of more nihilistic view of the Vietnam War. Um, they also had, some, I mean, they had some other sort of petty issues with it. They said there was too much sex in it. They, there was too much bad language. The usual stuff that the DOD just kind of objects to because, um, I mean, one of the reasons is that the more sex and bad language you have in it, the higher the age certificate, and therefore the less number of people will get to see it, and therefore it has less recruitment value. That's something that's actually said explicitly in a DOD memo, not on this film, but on another one. Um, they also changed that thing about the, um, like you said, Henry, that this story is kind of originates in this McNamara's 100,000, um, that in the original script, Forrest and Bubba were part of like a whole squad, a whole team of guys who weren't very bright, let's say. Um, and the idea was, you know, this is a kind of a posse of morons who will just follow orders. And the DOD told them to remove that from the script. They said, we can't, you know, we're certainly not supporting the film if that is in there. And in the finished film, it isn't. Even though they never actually won DOD support, that particular change remained in the finished script. And so that, even that took it further away from its origins and further away from what started out as quite a critical story about the military and a critical story about the Vietnam War. So they certainly played some role in that. I think some of the other changes will also have been enforced you know, by the studio and what have you, because they're saying, no, no, we want this to be a kind of fun, feel-good movie, not a hard-hitting critique of American history. So, um, yeah, it wasn't just the DoD, but it certainly was the DoD in part. I just can't help but comment <laughs> out of my sort of... Uh early uh, skeptical view. Isn't it fascinating that the military is, you know, I understand why the military would be against an anti-war film, against a nihilistic portrayal of Vietnam, even though Vietnam was an utterly nihilistic war. And I say that from mm. a military historian's point of view, but the fact that they don't like like sex and, and drug use, I find so fascinating because in other words, they're fine with as much gratuitous violence as, as, as is imaginable and blood as long as it's like pro-war. You know what I mean? So like movies like Lone Survivor and American Sniper, like, you know, that stuff's fine. But God forbid we, we show the natural like human inclination for sex, you know, or drugs or cigarettes. It's, it's like the fact that the military is this like conservative Christian influenced organization when its entire purpose is death killing violence for better or for worse. And sometimes you need that. I'm not a pacifist, but I just find the hypocrisy in that. And, and it's not just the films where I've seen this. I saw it at West Point as a cadet and as a teacher. It's like, we're teaching these cadets how to literally kill. When I was there, we still did the bayonet course and stabbed bean bags and stuff and yelled, kill what makes the grass grow blood. But if you had sex in the barracks, you were kicked out. Or if you were found with pornography, you were done. You're in big trouble. You know, and it's just so, it's just fascinating the difference between, you know, sex and foul language, which is like not acceptable, but 
violence and aggression, totally acceptable. It's just, it's so typical of the DOD. Oh, utterly. I mean, the only film I can, I've ever come across where they uh, turned it down because they felt it was gratuitously violent, Robocop, which, to be fair, is gratuitously violent, but that's part of the whole point of the movie. Um, and of course, that's a film that is very much a kind of anti-war, anti-corporate, anti-domination kind of film. It's, it's quite, uh, if you like, revolutionary in that sense, or certainly quite radical in, in its ideas. Um, but that's the only time the DOD have ever said, oh, no, this is, we can't do this because it's too violent. And like you say, you look at, the violence of, look at the violence of Black Hawk Down. I mean, it's a great movie in some ways, but it's horribly violent. You've got people, you know, seeing people's fingers get shot off, stuff like that. Really intense body horror. Um, DOD didn't have any problem with that. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies means the world to us. But we can't do it all. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone who you might think could be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and the violence inflicted by some of those same minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect. Please share this with them. But sharing our episodes is just one of the many ways you can support the podcast. In addition, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping BT, Danny, and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are. Matthew Ho, Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James Obar, Adam Bellows, and Eric Phillips. Your contributions are so helpful to us. Thank you all so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Let's get back to the podcast. In the film, when Forrest and Bubba first meet Lieutenant Dan, they talk about how his family lineage is that he has a relative that fought and died in every single American war. Mm-hmm. We then cut to later on where Dan has, has lost his legs or his legs are essentially dead and he's going to lose them. And he grabs a hold of Forrest and says, you know, I was supposed to, I was supposed to be something different. I had a destiny. And, you know, that, that really from us talking about the anti-war themes of the book to the vapidly pro-war themes of the film, that, that really, you know, that really could hit home hard because he's not questioning the, the loss of his legs. He's questioning why he's still on this earth. He thought that was his claim to fame, that he was going to burn out into the atmosphere, so to speak. 
he even implies that it was sort of God's plan that he die. Yes, exactly. Right, Which right. ties into like what we were saying on the long road home. This notion of fate and destiny being a part of the uh, military ideology, certainly in entertainment. I mean, you guys can talk about it from direct experience, but yeah, that's something that keeps coming up, and it comes up in this one as well. No, there was a lot of mentions. There was there was a. Uh... Dan had an, kind of an inherent, I wouldn't call it atheism, but he, he was clearly at, at best agnostic for a, for a time there. You know, remember Forrest going and singing in the choir and he sits at the back of the room kind of sullen, you know, he, he's there for whatever kind of support he thinks he might be giving Forrest, but he's not there because of wanting to do anything. Then later on, Forrest very explicitly says, I think he finally made his peace with God. And so there's like a godless section here and it's not pointed out to any by anything, but it's very clear and distinct. Mm, mm. No, you're right. In some ways, that's the kind of theology of his character arc throughout the movie. And that he goes from when he's in the military, he has this sense of fate and destiny and God's plan, which he then loses because he, in his eyes, fails to die on the battlefield. Um, he then goes through this very atheistic or at least agnostic period where he obviously isn't doing very well emotionally. And then that's resolved in the end because he sort of rediscovers his faith in God and everything's all right. Um, and that's actually quite, a, quite profound. I mean, like I say, the, the movie is full of some pretty big ideas for what's essentially quite a silly, feel-good movie. Um, and that's a big, big part of it. Also, I, um, Bubba was drafted. He did not join the military voluntarily but I don't think we know Forrest joined because he wanted to join, but they don't ever specify how Bubba joined under what circumstances. And thinking about it a little bit bigger, I don't think the film references the draft at all. I mean, there's during the protest scenes in DC, it's clear that's what that's part of what they're protesting, but nobody says it. It's no different than the guy with the American flag t-shirt. Um, I wrote down his name. I'm, I remember he's doing horrible. It's Abby Hoffman, isn't it? So it's Thank Abby you. Hoffman. Yes, Abby Hoffman. Yeah. Um, but they don't ever say his name. They don't ever explicitly share any of his words. And by the way, that didn't happen. He never attended a speech like that in D.C. in protests of the war and in front of a giant crowd. Now, he did run on to stage at Woodstock and try to stop the who, and he was using that as a a means of social protest, but... None of that is included. None of that is, is mentioned whatsoever. And um, the man wrote like a dozen books, right, Danny? He, he did a ton oh, yeah. of things for the anti-war movement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was a pretty in, intense figure um, in the anti-war, right? Sort of the epitome of the yippies, right? You know, because yeah. then there was the hippies and then there was the yippies who were more political, right? Um, yeah, they don't, they don't specifically um, introduce him. I think that for because consider when it came out right is it 94 is that when the yeah, movie comes out 94 so i mean my father was of that generation right and so in 94 you know he's eh, 43 years old right and i do think that with you know one of the interesting things about the movie is without specifying a lot of things people of his age bracket plus or minus 10 years they all knew it was abby hoffman you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think people of that generation more than ours, you know, just picked up on certain things. Like, cause as soon as they saw him wearing the American flag t-shirt and his hair looked a certain way, they're like, Oh, that's Abby Hoffman, you yeah, know, because yeah. the, the, he was just a cultural touchstone. But like, I, here's what's interesting about it. 
take that movie 20 years later and almost anybody who watched it now would miss a whole lot of references unless they were historians and like nobody's a historian, you know? So I, I just think a lot of things would have gotten lost, but it was a period piece and it comes out when the boomers are about 40, you know, 40 to 50 years old. And like, they very much knew what they were looking at. And I think they understood the themes and they understood some of the subtle references. They know who Joan Baez is, right? When Jenny goes on stage and says that she's going to play a song by Joan Baez. Um, I mean, someone watched that movie today or 10 years from now, and that's a lot of that's going to be lost. I just had a thought about when I, I, I first saw it as a, I was 10. My, uh, my grandfather took me to see it and he took me to see quite a few other, I think what he, what he believed were, were historical films. Um, but some on the military, cause he was in the army in the fifties and I was going to talking about joining the army, even as a young man. Um, but like what you mentioned, Danny, you know, my grandfather was born in 1936. His, you know, the, his connection to the culture may not have been where those kind of things would have been something that he lived through. And of course, for me, I was 10. And so, like you said, that it was, it could, it could be very obvious to that subsect that includes your dad, but so many other people would simply take it as the feel good film that most everybody sees it as. Absolutely. So, uh. Uh, I want to move on to the um, to the storyboards that were included in the DoD pages. Um, you notice several places in here where there are um, racist references to NVA soldiers that never made it into the film. Um, you also have a, a combat scene that, as the storyboard portrays it here, seems very elaborate and very accurate for what what. Uh, what Vietnam combat was, was like. The um, they're showing shown here is making a what we used to what we call in the army is a movement to contact. They don't know they're just out on patrol right now, but they come up on a, upon a sniper, and in the storyboards it's very clear where the location of the sniper is, exactly how far they have a, a map of the area as far as what happened in it, um, and people just start running away in the storyboards here. Soldiers just start running for their lives. Specifically, I'm sure, because this is more tilted towards the book where they're dealing with guys that are of, of, of a little bit lesser intellects. Um, and that and Forrest does the same. Forrest does in here, you know, they, he returned fire for a minute, but without any prompting from Lieutenant Dan, he leaves and runs. And as he's the running Forrest Gump, he passes everybody. And it's only at about that moment in the sequence where the remainder is the same as it is in the film, that Forrest wants to go back for Bubba, and each time he goes back, he finds another wounded comrade. Um, you don't see no NVA soldiers. Like, uh, like you mentioned, Danny, you do hear them a little bit here and there, but you, you can't, I mean, it, certainly they're speaking Vietnamese, so we can't tell what they're saying. Um, but it, it, they felt very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost like walking into a haunted forest. You know that that it that suddenly yeah, yeah, suddenly they have this sort of spectral presence. Exactly, exactly. But it, but yeah. at at the end of any firefight, there's going to be you know you're going to have dead soldiers on either side, and maybe some prisoners. And so I think it's really interesting that all of the more harsher war elements here were completely stripped away. One of them was that the book specified they were using they Lieutenant Dan called in an airstrike with white phosphorus specifically, and then there was a second strike if I'm remembering that right, that was involving napalm. 
in the film, what we see is, is just napalm. Not that napalm is a friend to anybody, but white phosphorus would cause a lot more scarring, a lot more very visible, very disturbing wounds. So its entire removal makes perfect sense if they're wanting to dial it down a bit. Well, I mean, that whole, the whole Vietnam sequence is something that was what the military were really concerned about. The rest of the movie, they, I mean, they had some objective changes, but it, it's the section when Forrest joins the military and is sent out to Vietnam. That's the thing they were really concerned with. And that's the reason why this whole cartoon storyboarding is in the DOD file is because after they submitted the script, they said, we'll also send you like the whole storyboard for the Vietnam battle sequence. Because the DOD were like, well, it doesn't really, you know, the, it, it doesn't, the, the page doesn't tell you that much, just reading it about, about it in a screenplay. They wanted to see, you know, what are you actually planning here? Um, and that's why all of those, there's, you know, like three dozen pages of this storyboard. It's very elaborate. You know, it's all very, you know, carefully planned out. Um, but like you say, it's very, very interesting that they didn't include any, at least visual, uh, examples of, of NVA soldiers, that the Vietnam War is sort of, well, who are they even fighting against? It's merely that there's someone there or something there that they're fighting. And maybe that's, in some ways you could say that's the nihilistic view of the Vietnam War, that it's not even clear who they're fighting. But as, as we were saying, that was something the DOD objected to in earlier versions of the script, where in this storyboard, you did see that the NVA soldiers. Um, so it's not entirely clear why they stripped those out, except maybe, I mean, I'm struggling to think of a, of a good reason. I do know that after the army reviewed the script and basically said no, the Marine Corps did say, well, we might be interested in supporting this movie, but you have to change Forrest to a Marine and you have to have him be in the Marine Corps and a Marine Corps unit in Vietnam. And I think it was Robert Zemeckis looked at this and he said, no, 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 he's in the army in the original book. We want to keep that. I see him very much as an army guy. And, I mean, no, no disrespect either way to the you know, people from either branch, but I don't see it makes much difference in the story that they're telling in the film. I'm not sure why that was a sticking point for Robert Zemeckis, but so many of these other things weren't. And we do know that after they received this feedback from the army, and the army basically said no, there was, um, they did go on a tour of, I think it was Paris Island, the Marine Corps said, okay, you can come in and, you know, sort of have a walking tour of the place. And they thought this might help in some way influence the depiction in the movie. So maybe it was at that point that they were sort of leaning on the filmmakers saying, you know, maybe change some of these elements in this storyboard, maybe remove these NBA soldiers, maybe don't have the white phosphorus. And while there's nothing in the file that explicitly says that, I get the impression it was at that point there was a little bit more influence from another branch of the DOD saying, you know, dial this down, maybe take this out. This isn't quite what we'd like to see on the screen. And even though ultimately they provided no production assistance at all, it seems they had quite a big influence and impact on the script, which is impressive from one point of view, but it also makes you wonder how often has this happened? We know about hundreds of movies that did get production assistance. How many movies are there that kind of went through this process, never ended up with production assistance, but still made changes to their film to appease the military? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a, it's a really good question, Tom. Yeah, I was really struck by the level of, I don't know much about films, but the level of detail of the cartoonist drawing, I said that earlier, um, Henry, fascinating, the level of detail. 
that goes into something like that. And then the fact that they didn't even use the vast majority of it is uh, is interesting. And and so that's without production assistance, right? That that cartoon, correct? Is is that's just some? I mean, did they? I wonder if they had a military advisor. You know, sometimes they have these like not, not active duty. Like for example, in Platoon, they had this guy named Captain Dale something, right? And he was a retired uh, yeah, yeah. Dale Dial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and he's a retired guy. So I mean, uh, he's like their advisor to make sure it's realistic. I mean, you notice, and the great thing about Platoon is like the patches are accurate and shit. Like now, I know we're dig- digressing, but Tom, they the DOD didn't help with Platoon, I imagine. Yeah, of course, of course they wouldn't. But but obviously, I mean, they they had this like military advisor, which I've thought to myself, I would love that job, by the way. But uh, it's it's a pretty ac- it's a pretty accurate depiction. So I'm wondering if Forrest Gump had something like that, or because it's just it was a pretty well drawn out depiction of you know Vietnam battle and um, and even the battle scene that does come through. It's not poorly. It's not poorly done. I mean, it's it's fairly solid. And one of the things I like about the Vietnamese not being a presence is that it adds to the sense of Vietnam being a battle as much against ourselves as against the enemy. Like where the enemy is this nebulous ghost as, as the word you used earlier, because that is a big part of fighting a counterinsurgency is like you often, and I could say this from Iraq and Afghanistan. I think you agree, Henry in 75% of the firefights I've been in, we never saw the enemy. No, I mean, not, not clearly. I mean, maybe like a figure in the distance, but mostly it was like the flash of their muzzle or a bomb they set off from many, many, many hundreds of meters away. I mean, and one of the frustrating things about fighting the war like Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria is that there, there is a sense that the enemy is, is, is so distant and so um, opaque that there's a frustration with, with fighting him, you know, because they, they, they melt into the jungle or in the case of Iraq, they melt into the city. You know, they don't wear uniforms, although the NVA would wear uniforms, but the, the Kong often did not. So, I, I mean, it, it is an interesting component, and, and that's one of the things I actually did like. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the absence of the NVA soldiers, I'm, I'm not sure where that comes from, why they were taken out. Because like you say, they're quite obviously present in this storyboarding. And yeah, I mean, to be honest, storyboarding like that, if you're making a movie with you know, an A-lister like Tom Hanks in it, they will tend to you know, map things out that closely. I can't remember exactly, but I'm fairly sure they did have a former military tech advisor working on the film. I can't remember for certain, and I certainly can't tell you who it was, but because you've now brought that up, that's that sprung something in my memory. Um, I imagine if we check IMDb, we might be able to find out. But yeah, there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those guys. It's actually a fairly common job, people who used to be in the military, to now be either training uh, Hollywood stars in you know shooting and combat and you know, how you move around in a combat area or something like that. Um, or they have an impact on the script. They say, this is how you make it more accurate. This is how you do the visuals, the uniforms, and so on. Um, and actually, I mean, this is one of the strange things, though. Quite a lot of DOD-supported films also have private technical advisors. So you don't just have the military themselves providing you with this kind of input and information. You have someone from the private sector who used to be in the military doing it as well. And you kind of wonder why. Surely you can just get everything you need from the military themselves. Why do you also have to hire this you know, private guy to do it as well? And it is something that comes up a bit. I mean, this is a little inside baseball, but 
I have seen emails, for example, where Phil Strubb was objecting to the choice of technical advisor when they were supporting a film and they hired someone from the private sector, that Phil Strubb wasn't necessarily happy with who they chose. And other emails and documents show that sometimes they actually tell the filmmakers, hire this guy, we recommend him. Um, so there is some strange relationship between you know, the entertainment liaison officers themselves, the current military, and these former military guys who are providing some kind of consultancy or advice role in Hollywood. Sometimes they're sort of pushing them in a certain direction. Other times they're objecting to who that is. And sometimes they seem to be working side by side. Uh, in one of the emails, actually, on the long road home, they were saying that the private technical advisor that the show, the production company had hired, helping the military get their points across to the director and, you know, making sure that they stayed on script and everything. So there is a, a curious relationship there that seems that they are, if you like, unofficial unacknowledged entertainment liaison officers. Therefore, they're sort of unacknowledged propagandists for the military, um, even though they're entirely working in the private sector now. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time.